epilogue to Rescue Tanalorn, in which we learn of the further adventures of Rakir, the Red Archer, and other heroes and places Elric has hitherto encountered only in what he chooses to consider his dreams. Beyond the tall and ominous glass-green forest of Trues, well to the north and unheard of in Bakshan, elsewhere, or any other city of the Young Kingdoms, on the shifting shores of the sighing desert, lay Tanalorn, a lonely, long-ago city, loved by those it sheltered. Tanalorn had a peculiar nature in that it welcomed and held the wanderer. To its peaceful streets and low houses came the gaunt, the savage, the brutalised, the tormented, and in Tanalorn they found rest. Now most of these troubled travellers who dwelt in peaceful Tanalorn had thrown off earlier allegiances to the Lords of Chaos who, as gods, took more than a mild interest in the affairs of men. It happened, therefore, that these same lords grew to resent the unlikely city of Tanalorn and, not for the first time, decided to act against it. They instructed one of their number, more they could not then send, Lord Najhan, to journey to Nadsakor, the city of beggars, which had an old grudge against Tanalorn, and raise an army that would attack undefended Tanalorn and destroy it and its inhabitants. So he did this, arming his ragged army and promising them many things. Then, like a ferocious tide that the beggar rabble set off to tear down Tanalorn and slay its residents. In a great torrent of men and women in rags, on crutches, blind, maimed, but moving steadily, ominously, implacably, northwards towards the sighing desert. In Tanalorn dwelt the Red Archer, Rahir, from the eastlands beyond the sighing desert, beyond the weeping waste. Rahir had been a warrior priest, a servant of the Lords of Chaos, but had forsaken this life for the quieter pursuits of thievery and learning. A man with harsh features slashed from the bone of his skull, strong, fleshless nose, deep eye cavities, a thin mouth and a thin beard. He wore a red skull cap, decorated with a hawk's feather, a red jerkin, tight-fitting and belted at the waist, red breeks and red boots. It was as if all the blood in him had transferred itself to his gear and left him drained. He was happy, however, in Tanalorn, the city which made all such men happy, and felt he would die there, if men died there, he did not know if they did. One day he saw Brute of Lashmar, a great blonde-headed noble of shamed name, ride wearily, yet urgently, through the low wall gate of the City of Peace. Brute's silver harness and trappings were begrimed, his yellow cloak torn and his brawn-brimmed hat battered. A small crowd collected around him as he rode into the city square and halted, and then he gave his news. Beggars from Nadsakor, many thousands move against our Tanalorn, he said, and they are led by Narjan of Chaos, 
Now, all the men in there were soldiers of some kind, good ones for the most part, and they were confident warriors, but few in number. A horde of beggars led by such a being as Naj Han could destroy Tanalorn, they knew. Should we then leave Tanalorn? said Uroch of Nieva, a young, wasted man who had been a drunkard. We owe the city too much to desert her, Rakia said. We should defend her for her sake and ours. There will never be such a city again. Brute leaned forward in his saddle and said, In principle, Red Archer, I am in agreement with you. But principle is not enough without deeds. How would you suggest we defend this low-walled city against siege and the powers of chaos? We should need help, Rakia replied. Supernatural help, if need be. Would the Grey Lords help us? Sass, the one-handed, asked the question. He was an old torn wanderer who had once gained a throne and lost it again. Aye, the Grey Lords, several voices chorused this hopefully. Who are the Grey Lords, said Uroch, but no one heard him. They are not inclined to aid anyone at all, Zass the one-handed pointed out. But surely Tanalorn, coming as it does under neither the forces of law nor the Lords of Chaos, would be worth their while preserving. After all, they have no loyalties either. I'm for seeking the Grey Lord's aid, Brute nodded. Well, what of the rest of us? There was a general agreement. In silence when they realised that they knew of no means of contacting the mysterious and insouciant beings. At last, Zass pointed this out. Wakia said, I know a seer, a hermit who lives in the Sighing Desert. Perhaps he can help. I think that after all we should not waste time looking for supernatural assistance against this beggar rabble, Uroch said. Let us prepare instead to meet the attack with physical means. Well, you forget, Brute said wearily, that they are led by Najan of Chaos. He is not human and has the whole strength of Chaos behind him. We know that the Grey Lords are pledged neither to law nor to Chaos, but will sometimes help either side if the whim takes them. They are our only chance. Well, why not seek the forces of law, sworn enemies of Chaos and mightier than the Grey Lords? Uroch said. Because Tanalorn is a city owing allegiance to neither side. We are all of us men and women who have broken our pledge to chaos, but have made no new one to law. The forces of law in matters of this kind will help only those sworn to them. The Grey Lords only may protect us, if they would. So said Zass. I will go to find my seer, Rikia the Red Archer said. And if he knows how I may reach the domain of the Grey Lords, then I'll continue straight on, for there is so little time. If I reach them and solicit their help, you will know that I have done so. If not, you must die in Tanalor's defence, and if I live, I will join you in the last battle. Very well, Bruce agreed. Go quickly, Red Archer. Let one of your own arrows be the measure of your speed and taking little with them save his bone bow and a quiver of scarlet-fletched arrows, Rakir set off for the sighing desert.
from Nadsakor, southwest through the land of Vilmir, even through the squalid country of Org, which has in it the dreadful forest of Trues. There was flame and black horror in the wake of the beggar horde, and insolent, disdainful of them, though he led them, rode a being completely clad in black armour, with a voice that rang hollow in the helm. People fled away at their approach, and the land was made barren by their passing. Most knew what had happened, that the bigger citizens of Nadzakor had, contrary to their traditions of centuries, vomited forth from the city into the uh, wild, menacing horde. Someone had armed them. Someone had made them go northwards and westwards towards the sighing desert. But who was the one who led them? Ordinary folk did not know. And why did they head for the sighing desert? There was no city beyond Karlark, which they had skirted, only the Sighing Desert, and beyond that the edge of the world. Was that their destination? Were they heading lemming-like to their destruction? Everyone hoped so, in their hate for the horrible horde. Rakir rode through the mournful wind of the Sighing Desert. His face and eyes protected against the particles of sand which flew about. He was thirsty and had been riding a day. Ahead of him at last were the rocks he sought. He reached the rocks and called above the wind. Lamsar! The hermit came out in answer to Rakir's shout. He was dressed in oiled leather to which sand clung. His beard too was encrusted with sand and his skin seemed to have taken on the colour and texture of the desert. He recognised Rakir immediately by his dress, beckoned him into the cave, and disappeared back inside. Rakir dismounted and led his horse to the cave entrance and went in. Lamsar was seated on a smooth rock. "'You are welcome, Red Archer,' he said, "'and I perceive by your manner that you wish information from me, "'and that your mission is urgent.' Oh, I seek the help of the Grey Lords, Lamsar, said Rakia. The old hermit smiled. It was as if a fissure had suddenly appeared in a rock. To risk the journey through the five gates, your mission must be important. I will tell you how to reach the Grey Lords, but the road is a difficult one. Oh, I am willing to take it, Rakia replied, for Tanalorn is threatened, and the Grey Lords could help her. Then you must pass through the first gate, which lies in our own dimension. I will help you find it. And then what must I do? You must pass through all five gates. Each gateway leads to a realm which lies beyond and within our own dimension. In each realm you must speak with the dwellers there. Some are friendly to men and some are not, but all must answer your question. Where lies the next gate? Though... Some may seek to stop you passing. The last gate leads to the Grey Lord's domain. And the first gate? Well, that lies anywhere in this realm. I will find it for you now. Lamzar composed himself to meditate, and Rakir, who had expected some sort of gaudy miracle working from the old man, was disappointed. Several hours went by until Lamzar said, The gate is outside... Memorize the following. 
if x is equal to the spirit of humanity, then the combination of the two must be of double power. Therefore, the spirit of humanity always contains the power to dominate itself. A strange equation, said Rikia. Aye, but memorize it. Meditate upon it, and then we will leave. We? You as well? Hmm, I think so. The hermit was old. Rakia did not want him on the journey. But then he realized that the hermit's knowledge could be of use to him, so he did not object. He thought about the equation, and as he thought, his mind seemed to glitter and become diffused until he was in a strange trance, and all his powers felt greater, both those of mind and body. The hermit got up, and Rakia followed him. They went out of the cave mouth, but instead of the sighing desert, there was a hazy cloud of blue shimmering light ahead. And when they had passed through this in a second, they found themselves in the foothills of a low mountain range. Below them in a valley were villages. The villages were strangely laid out, all the houses in a wide circle about a huge amphitheatre containing at its centre a circular dais. It will be interesting to learn the reason why these villages are so arranged, Lamzar said, and they began to move down into the valley. As they reached to the bottom and came close to one of the villages, people came gaily out and danced joyfully towards them. They stopped in front of Rakir and Lamzar, and jumping from foot to foot as he greeted them, the leader spoke. You are strangers, we can tell, and you are welcome to all we have, food, accommodation, entertainment... The two men thanked them graciously and accompanied them back into the circular village. The amphitheatre was made of mud and seemed to have been stamped out, hollowed into, the ground encompassed by the houses. The leader of the villagers took them to his house and offered them food. You have come to us at a rest time, he said, but do not worry, things will soon commence again. My name is Yerleru. We seek the next gates, Lamzar said politely, and... Our mission is urgent. You will forgive us if we do not stay long. Come, said Yerleru. Things are about to commence. You will see us at our best and must join us. All the villagers had assembled in the amphitheatre, surrounding the platform in the centre. Most of them were light-skinned and light-haired, gay and smiling, excited, but a few were evidently of a different race, dark, black-haired, and these were sullen. Sensing something ominous in what he saw, Rakia asked the question directly, Where is the next gate? Yerleru hesitated, his mouth worked, and then he smiled. Where the winds meet, he said. Rakia declared angrily, That's no answer. Well, yes it is, said Lamzar softly behind him, a fair answer. Now we shall dance. Yularu said. First you shall watch our dance, and then you shall join in. Dance, said Rakia, wishing he had brought a sword or at least a dagger. Yes, you will like it. Everyone likes it. You will find it will do you good. What if we do not wish to dance? Well, you must. It is for your own good, be assured. And he? Rakia pointed at one of the sullen men. Does he enjoy it? It is for his own good, too. Yularu clapped his hands, and at once the fair-haired people leapt into a frenetic, senseless dance. 
Some of them sang. The sullen people did not sing. And after a little hesitation, they began to prance dully about, their frowning features contrasting with their jerking bodies. Soon the whole village was dancing, whirling, singing a monotonous song. Yuluru flashed by, whirling. Come, join in now. We'd better leave, Lamzar said with a faint smile, and they backed away. Yuluru saw them. No, you must not leave, you must dance. They turned and ran as fast as the old man could go. The dancing villagers changed the direction of their dance and began to whirl menacingly towards them in a horrible semblance of gaiety. There's nothing for it, Lamzar said and stood his ground, observing them through ironic eyes. The mountain gods must be invoked. A pity for sorcery wearies me. Let us hope their magic extends to this plane. Order! Words in an unusually harsh language issued from Lamzar's old mouth. The whirling villagers came on. Lamzar pointed at them. The villagers became suddenly petrified, and slowly, disturbingly, their bodies caught in a hundred positions, turned to smooth black basalt. It was for their own good, Lamzar smiled grimly. Come to the place where the winds meet, and he took Rakia there quite swiftly. At the place where the winds met, they found the second gateway, a colour of amber-coloured flame and shot through with streaks of green. They entered it and instantly were in a world of dark, seething colour. Above them were the sky of murky red in which other colours shifted, agitated, changing. Ahead of them lay a forest, dark, blue, black, heavy mottled green, the tops of its trees moving like a wild tide was a howling land of unnatural phenomena. Lamsar pursed his lips. On this plane, chaos rules. We must get to the next gate swiftly, for obviously the lords of chaos will try to stop us. Is it always like this? Rakia gasped. It is always boiling midnight, but the rest it changes with the moods of the lords. There are no rules at all. They pressed on through the bounding, blossoming scenery as it erupted and changed around them. Once they saw a huge winged figure in the sky, smoky yellow and roughly man-shaped. Vesjan, Lamzar said. Let's hope he did not see us. Vesjan, Rakia whispered the name, for it was to Vesjan that he had once been loyal. They crept on, undisturbed of their direction or even of their speed. Uncertain of their direction or even of their speed in that disturbing land. At length they came to the shores of a peculiar ocean. It was a grey, heaving, timeless sea. A mysterious sea which stretched into infinity. There could be no other shores beyond this rolling plain of water. No other lands or rivers or dark, cool woods. No other men or women or ships. It was a sea which led to nowhere. Complete to itself. A sea. Over this timeless ocean hovered a brooding ochre sun which cast moody shadows of black and green across the water, giving the whole scene something of the look of being enclosed in a vast cavern. 
for the sky above was gnarled and black with ancient clouds, and all the while the doom carried crash of breakers, the lonely, fated monotony of the ever-rearing white-topped waves, the sound which portended neither death nor life nor war nor peace, simply existence and shifting inharmony. They could go no further. This has the air of our death about it, Rukia said, shivering. The sea roared and tumbled, the sound of it increasing to a fury, daring them to go towards it, welcoming them with wild temptation, offering them nothing but achievement, the achievement of death. Lamzar said, It is not my fate wholly to perish. But then they were running back towards the forest, feeling that the strange sea was pouring up the beach towards them. They looked back and saw that it had gone no further, that the breakers were less wild, the sea more calm. Lamzar was a little way behind Rakia. The red archer gripped his hand and hauled him forwards, as if he had rescued the old man from a whirlpool. They remained there, mesmerised for a long time, while the sea called to them and the wind was a cold caress on their flesh. In the bleak brightness of the alien shore, under a sun which gave no heat, their bodies shone like stars in the night. They turned towards the forest quietly. Are we trapped then in this realm of chaos? Rakia said at length. If we meet someone, they will offer us harm. How can we ask our question? Then there emerged from the huge forest a great figure, naked and gnarled like the trunk of a tree, green as a lime, but the face was jovial. Greetings, unhappy renegades, it said. Where is the next gate, said Lamzar quickly. You almost entered it, but turned away, laughed the giant. That sea does not exist. It is there to stop travellers from passing through the gate. It exists here in the realm of chaos, Rakia said thickly. You could say so. But what exists in chaos save the disorders of the minds of gods gone mad? Rakia had strung his bone bow and fitted an arrow to the string, but he did it in the knowledge of his own hopelessness. Do not shoot the arrow, said Lamzar softly. Not yet. And he stared at the arrow and muttered. The giant advanced carelessly towards them, unhurried. It will please me to exact the price of your crimes from you, it said, for I am Hjornhern, the executioner. You will find your death pleasant, but your fate unbearable. As he came closer, his clawed hands outstretched. Shoot, croaked Lamzar, and Rakia brought the bowstring to his cheek pulled it back with might and released the arrow at the giant's heart. Run, cried Lamzar, and in spite of their forebodings, they ran back down the shore towards the frightful sea. They heard the giant groan behind them, and as they reached the edge of the sea, and instead of running into the water, found themselves in a range of stark mountains. No mortal arrow could have delayed him, Rakia said. How did you stop him? I used an old charm. 
charm of justice, which, when applied to any weapon, makes it strike at the unjust. But why did it hurt Hyonhoon, an immortal? Rikia asks. There is no justice in the world of chaos. Something constant and inflexible, whatever its nature, must harm any servant of the lords of chaos. We have passed through the third gate, Rakia said, unstrunging his bow, and have the fourth and fifth to find. Two dangers have been avoided, but what new ones will we encounter now? Who knows, said Lamsar, and they walked on through the rocky mountain pass and entered a forest that was cool, even though the sun had reached its zenith and was glaring down through parts of the thick foliage. There was an air of ancient calm about the place. They heard unfamiliar bird calls and saw tiny golden birds which were also new to them. There's something calm and peaceful about this place. And I almost distrust it, Rikia said, but Lamsar pointed ahead silently. Rikia saw a large domed building, magnificent in marble and blue mosaic. It stood in a clearing of yellow grass and the marble caught the sun, flashing like fire. They neared the domed construction and saw that it was supported by big marble columns set into a platform of milky jade. In the centre of the platform, a stairway of blue stone curved upwards and disappeared into a circular aperture. There were wide windows set into the sides of the raised buildings, but they could not see inside. There were no inhabitants visible, and it would have seemed strange to the pair if there had been. They crossed the yellow glade and stepped onto the jade platform. It was warm, as if it had been exposed to the sun. They almost slipped on the smooth stone. They reached the blue steps and mounted them, staring upwards, but they could still see nothing. They did not attempt to ask themselves why they were so assuredly invading the building. It seemed quite natural that they should do what they were doing. Well, there was no alternative. There was an air of familiarity about the place. Rakia felt it, but did not know why. Inside the cool, shadowy hall, a blend of soft darkness and bright sunlight which entered by the windows. The floor was pearl pink, and the ceiling deep scarlet. The hall reminded Rakia of a womb. Partially hidden by deep shadow was a small doorway, and beyond its steps, Rakia looked questioningly at Lamzar. Do we proceed in our explorations? We must, to have our question answered, if possible. They climbed the steps and found themselves in a smaller hall, similar to the one beneath them. This hall, however, was furnished with twelve wide thrones placed in a semicircle in the centre. Against the wall, near the door, were several chairs, upholstered in purple fabric. The thrones were of gold, decorated with fine silver, padded with white cloth. The door behind the throne opened and a tall, fragile-looking man appeared, followed by others whose faces were almost identical. Only their robes were noticeably different. Their faces were pale, almost white, their noses straight, their lips thin but not cruel. Their eyes were unhuman, green-flecked eyes which stared outwards with sad composure. 
leader of the tall men, looked at Rakir and Lamza. He nodded and waved a pale, long-fingered hand gracefully. Welcome, he said. His voice was high and frail like a girl's, but beautiful in its modulation. The other eleven men seated themselves in the throne, in the thrones, but the first man who had spoken remained standing. Sit down, please, he said, and Akir and Lamzar sat down on two of the purple chairs. How did you come here? inquired the man. Through the gates from chaos, Lamzar replied. And were you seeking our realm? No, we travel towards the domain of the Grey Lords. I thought so, for your people rarely visit us save by accident. Where are we? asked Rakia, as the man seated himself in the remaining throne. In a place beyond time. Once our land was part of the earth you know, but in the dim past it became separated from it. Our bodies, unlike yours, are immortal. We choose this, but we are not bound to our flesh as you are. I don't understand, frowned Rakia. What are you saying? I have said what I can in the simplest terms understandable to you. If you do not know what I say, then I can explain no further. We are called the Guardians, though we guard nothing. We are warriors, but we fight nothing. What else do you do? inquired Rakia. We exist. You will want to know where the next gateway lies. Yes. Refresh yourselves here and then we shall show you the gateway. What is your function? asked Rakia. To function, said the man. You are unhuman. We are human. You spend your lives chasing that which is within you and that which you can find in any other human being, but you will not look for it there. You must follow more glamorous paths to waste your time in order to discover that you have wasted your time. I am glad that we are no longer like you, but I wish it were help lawful to help you further. This, however, we may not do. Well, ours is no meaningless quest, said Lamzar quietly, with respect. We go to rescue Tanalorn. Tanalorn, the man said softly. Does Tanalorn still remain? Aye, said Rakia, and shelters tired men who are grateful for the rest she offers. Now he realised why the building had been familiar. It had the same quality intensified, as Tanalorn. Tanalorn was the last of our cities, said the Guardian. Forgive us for judging you. Most of the travellers who pass through this plain are searchers, restless with no real purpose, only excuses, imaginary reasons for journeying on. 
You must love Tenelorn to brave the dangers of the gateways. We do, said Rakia, and I am grateful that you built her. We built her for ourselves, but it is good that others have used her well, and she them. Will you help us, Rakia said, for Tenelorn? We cannot. It is not lawful. Now refresh yourselves and be welcome. The two travellers were given foods, both soft and brittle, sweet and sour, and drink which seemed to enter the pores of their skin as they quaffed it. And then the guardian said, We have caused a road to be made. Follow it and enter the next world, but we warn you it is the most dangerous of all. And they set off down the road that the guardians had caused to be made, and passed through the fourth gateway into a dreadful realm. The realm of law. Nothing shone in the grey-lit sky. Nothing moved. Nothing marred the grey. Nothing interrupted the bleak grey plains stretching on all sides of them forever. There was no horizon. It was a bright, clean wasteland. There was a sense about the air, a presence of something past, something which had gone but left a faint aura of its passing. What dangers could be here, said Rakia, shuddering, here where there is nothing. The danger of the loneliest madness, Lamzar replied. Their voices were swallowed in the grey expanse. When the earth was very young, Lamzar continued, his words trailing away across the wilderness. Things were like this. But there were seas. Here there is nothing. You're wrong, Rakia said with a faint smile. I have thought. Here there is law. That is true, but what is law without something to decide between? Here is law bereft of justice. They walked on all about them an air of something intangible that had once been tangible. On they walked through this barren world of absolute law. Eventually, Rakia spied something. Something that flickered, faded, appeared again, until, as they near it, they saw it was the body of a man. His great head was noble, firm, and his body was massively built. But the face was twisted in a tortured frown, and he did not see them as they approached him. They stopped before him, and Lamzar coughed to attract his attention. He turned his great head and regarded them abstractly, the frown clearing at length to be replaced by a calmer, thoughtful expression. "'Who are you?' asked Rakia. The man sighed. "'Not yet,' he said. Not yet, it seems. More phantoms. Are we the phantoms, smiled Rakia. That seems to be more your own nature. He watched as the man began slowly to fade again, his form less definite, melting. The body seemed to make a great heave, like a salmon attempting to leap a dam, and then it was back again in a more solid form. I had thought myself rid of all that was superfluous, save my own obstinate shape, the man said tiredly. 
But here is something back again. Is my reason failing? Is my logic no longer what it was? Well, do not fear, Cedric here. We are material beings. That is what I feared. For an eternity I have been stripping away the layers of unreality which obscure the truth. I have almost succeeded in the final act, and now you begin to creep back. My mind is not what it was, I think. Perhaps you worry lest we do not exist, Lamzar said slowly with a clever smile. You know that is not so. You do not exist, just as I do not exist. The frown returned, the features twisted. The body began again to fade, only to resume once more its earlier nature. The man sighed. Even to reply to you is betraying myself, but I suppose a little relaxation will serve to rest my powers and equip me for the final effort of will, which will bring me to the ultimate truth. The truth of non-being. But non-being involves non-thought. Non-will, non-action, Lamzar said. Surely you would not submit yourself to such a fate. There is no such thing as self. I am the only reasoning thing in creation. I am almost pure reason. A little more effort and I shall be what I desire to be. The one truth in this non-existent universe. That requires first ridding myself of anything extraneous around me, such as yourselves, and then making the final plunge into the only reality. What is that? The state of absolute nothingness, where there is nothing to disturb the order of things, because there is no order of things. Scarcely a constructive ambition, Rikia said. Construction is a meaningless word, like all words, like all so-called existence. Everything means nothing, that is the only truth. But what of this world? Barren as it is, it still has light and firm rock. You have not succeeded in reasoning that out of existence, Lamzar said. That will cease when I cease, the man said slowly, just as you will cease to be. Then there can be nothing but nothing, and law will reign unchallenged. But logic cannot reign, it will not exist either, according to your logic. You are wrong. Nothingness is the law. Nothingness is the object of law. Law is the way to its ultimate state, the state of non-being. Well, said Lamzar amusingly, then you had better tell us where we may find the next gate. There is no gate. Well, if there were, where would we find it, Rakia said. If a gate existed, and it does not, it would have been inside the mountain, close to what was once called the Sea of Peace. And where was that? Rikia asked, conscious now of their terrible predicament. There were no landmarks. 
no sun, no stars, nothing by which they could determine direction. Close to the mountain of severity. Which way do you go? Lamza inquired of the man. Out, beyond, to nowhere. And where, if you succeed in your object, will we be consigned? To some other nowhere, I cannot truthfully answer. But since you have never existed in reality, therefore you can go on to no non-reality. Only I am real, and I do not exist. We are getting nowhere, said Rakia with a smirk which changed to a frown. It is only my mind which holds the non-reality at bay, the man said, and I must concentrate or else it will all come flooding back and I shall have to start from the beginning again. In the beginning there was everything. Chaos. I created nothing. With resignation, Rakia strung his bow, fitted an arrow to the string and aimed at the frowning man. You wish for non-being? he said. I have told you so. Rikia's arrow pierced his heart. His body faded, became solid and slumped to the grass as mountains, forests and rivers appeared around them. It was still a peaceful, well-ordered world, and Rikia and Lamza, as they strode on in search of the mountain of severity, savoured it. There seemed to be no animal life here, and they talked in puzzled terms about the man they had been forced to kill, until at length they reached a great smooth pyramid which seemed, though it was of natural origin, to have been carved into this form. They walked around its base until they discovered an opening. There could be no doubt that this was the mountain of severity, and a calm ocean lay some distance away. They went into the opening and emerged into a delicate landscape. They were now through the last gateway and in the domain of the Grey Lords. There were trees like stiffened spiderwebs. Here and there were blue pools, shallow with shining water, and graceful rocks balanced in them and around their shores. Above them and beyond them, the light hills swept away towards a pastel yellow horizon, which was tinted with red, orange, and deep, deep blue. They felt over-large, clumsy, like crude, gross giants treading on fine, short grass. They felt as if they were destroying the sanctity of the place. Then they saw a girl come walking towards them. She stopped as they came closer to her. She was dressed in loose black robes which flowed about her as if in a wind. But there was no wind. Her face was pale and pointed. Her black eyes large and enigmatic. At her long throat was a jewel. Sorana, said Rakia thickly. You died. I disappeared, said she, and this is where I came. I was told that you would come to this place and decided that I would meet you. But this is the domain of the Grey Lords and you serve chaos. I do, 
but many are welcome at the grey lord's court, whether they be of law or chaos or neither. Come, I will escort you there. Bewildered now, Rikia let her lead the way across the strange terrain, and Lamzar followed him. Sorana and Rekia had been lovers once, in Yeshpatum Kalai, the unholy fortress where evil blossomed and was beautiful. Sorana, sorceress, adventurous, was without conscience, but had had high regard for the Red Archer since he had come to Yeshpatum Kalai one evening, covered in his own blood, survivor of a bizarre battle between the Knights of Tumru and Loheb Bakra's brigand engineers. Seven years ago, that had been, and he had heard her scream when the blue assassins had crept into the unholy fortress, pledged to murder evil makers. Even then he had been in the process of hurriedly leaving Yeshpatum Kalai, and had considered it unwise to investigate what was obviously a death screen. Now she was here, and... If she was here, then it was for a strong reason, and for her own convenience. On the other hand, it was in her interest to serve chaos, and he must be suspicious of her. Neither of them now, they saw many great tents of shimmering grey, which in the light seemed composed of all colours. People moved slowly among the tents, and there was an air of leisure about the place. Here, Sorana said, smiling at him and taking his hand. The Grey Lords hold impermanent court. They wander about their land and have few artefacts and only temporary houses, which you see. They will make you welcome if you interest them. But will they help us? Well, you must ask them. You are pledged to E-Core of Chaos, Rakia observed, and must aid her against us. Is that not so? Here, she smiled, is a truce. I can only inform Chaos of what I learn of your plans, and if the Grey Lords aid you, must tell them how, if I can find out. You are Frank Sorana? Here there are subtler hypocrisies. And the subtlest lie of all is the full truth, she said, as they entered the area of tall tents and made their way towards a certain one. In a different realm of the earth, the huge horde careered across the grasslands of the north, screaming and singing behind the black-armoured horsemen, their leader. Nearer and nearer they came to Lonely Town Lord, their motley weapons shining through the evening mists, like a boiling tidal wave of insensate flesh. The mob drove on, hysterical with their hate for Tanalorn, which Najan had placed in their thin hearts. Thieves... Murderers, jackals, scavengers, a scrawny horde, but huge. And in Tanalorn the warriors were grim-faced, as their outriders and scouts flowed into the city with messages and estimates of the bigger army's strength. Brute, in the silver armour of his rank, knew that two full days had passed since Rakia had left for the sighing desert. Three more days and the city would be engulfed by Najan's mighty rabble, and they knew there was no chance of halting their advance. They might have left Tanalorn to its fate, but they could not. 
Even weak Uroch would not. For Tantalorn the Mysterious had given them all a secret power which each believed to be his only. A strength which filled them where before they had been hollow men. Selfishly they stayed. For to leave Tantalorn to her fate would be to become hollow again. And that they all dreaded. Brute was the leader and he prepared the defence of Tantalorn. A defence which might just have held against the bigger army but not against it and chaos. Brute shuddered when he thought that if chaos had directed its full force against Tanalorn, they would be sobbing in hell at that moment. Dust rose high above Tanalorn, sent flying by the hooves of the scouts and messengers' horses. One came through the gate as Brute watched. He pulled his mount to a stop before the nobleman. He was the messenger from Carlark by the weeping waste, one of the nearest major cities to Tanalorn. The messenger gasped. I asked Carlark for aid, but as we had supposed, they had never heard of Tanalorn and suspected that I was an emissary from the beggar army sent to lead their few forces into a trap. I pleaded with the senators, but they would do nothing. Was not Elric there? He knows Tanalorn. No, he was not there. There is a rumour which says that he himself fights Chaos now, for the minions of Chaos captured his wife, Saracinia, and he rides in pursuit of them. Chaos, it seems, gains strength everywhere in our realm. Brute was pale. And what of Yadmar? Will Yadmar send warriors? The messenger spoke urgently, for many had been sent to nearer cities to solicit aid. I do not know, replied Brute. And it does not matter now, for the beggar army is not three days' march from Tanalorn, and it would take two weeks for a Yadmarian force to reach us. And Rakir? I have heard nothing, and he has not returned. I have the feeling he will not return. Tanalorn is doomed. Rakir and Lamsar bowed before the three small men who sat in the tent, but one of them said impatiently, Do not humble yourselves before us, friends, we who are humbler than any. So they straightened their backs and waited to be further addressed. The Grey Lords assumed humility, but this, it seemed, was their greatest ostentation, for it was a pride they had. Rakir realised that he would need to use subtle flattery, and was not sure that he could, for he was a warrior, not a courtier or a diplomat. Lamzar too realised the situation and he said, In our pride, lords, we have come to learn the simpler truths which are only truths, the truths which you can teach us. The speaker gave a self-deprecating smile and replied, The truth is not for us to define, guest. We can but offer our incomplete thoughts. They might interest you or help you to find your own truths. Indeed that is so, Rikia said, not wholly sure that with what he was agreeing, but judging it best to agree. And we wondered if you had any suggestions on a matter which concerns us, the protection of our Tanner lawn. We would not be so prideful as to interfere our own comments. We are not mighty intellects, the speaker replied blandly, and we have no confidence in our own decisions. For who knows? 
that they may be wrong and based on wrongly assessed information. Indeed, said Lemsar, judging that he must flatter them with their own assumed humility, and it is lucky for us, lords, we do not confuse pride with learning, for it is the quiet man who observes and says little who sees the most. Therefore, though we realise that you are not confident that your suggestion or help would be useful, nonetheless we, taking example from your own demeanour, humbly ask if you know of any way in which we might rescue Tanelorn? Rakia had hardly been able to follow the complexities of Lamsar's seemingly unsophisticated argument, but he saw that the Grey Lords were pleased. Out of the corner of his eye, he observed Sorana. She was smiling to herself, and it seemed evident by the characteristics of that smile that they had behaved in the right way. Now Sorana was listening intently, and Rakia cursed to himself that the Lords of Chaos would know of everything, and might even if they did gain the Grey Lord's aid, still be able to anticipate and stop any action they took to save Tenelorn. The speaker conferred in a liquid speech with his fellows and said finally, Rarely do we have the privilege to entertain such brave and intelligent men. How might our insignificant minds be put to your advantage? Rakia realised quite suddenly and almost laughed that the Grey Lords were not very clever at all. Their flattery had got them the help they required. He said, Najan of Chaos heads a huge army of human scum, a bigger army, and is sworn to tear down Tanalorn and kill her inhabitants. We need magical aid of some kind to combat one so powerful as Najan and defeat the beggars. Tanalorn cannot be destroyed, said a grey lord. She is eternal. And another, uh, but this manifestation, murmured the third, ah, uh, yes. There are beetles in Caliph, said a grey lord who had not spoken before, which emit a peculiar venom. Beetles, lord, said Rickia. They are the size of mammoths, said the third lord, but can change their size, and change the size of their prey, if it is too large for their gullets. Well, as for that matter, the first speaker said, there is a chimera which dwells in mountains south of here. It can change its shape, and contains hate for chaos, since chaos bred it and abandoned it with no real shape of its own. Well, then there are the four brothers of Hemishal, who are endowed with sorcerous power, said the second lord, but the first interrupted him. Their magic is no good outside their own dimension. I had thought, however, of reviving the blue wizard. Mm, too dangerous. And anyways, beyond our powers, said his companion. They continued to debate for a while, and Rakia and Lamzar said nothing, but waited. The boatmen of Zerlarines, we have decided, will probably be best equipped to aid you in defence of Tanalorn. You must go to the mountains of Zerlarines and find their lake. A lake, said Lamzar, in a range of mountains, I see. N no, the lord said, their lake lies above the mountains. We will find someone to take you there. Perhaps they will aid you. You can guarantee nothing else? Nothing. It is not our business to interfere. It is up to them to decide whether they will aid you or not. 
I see, said Rickia. Thank you. How much time had passed since he had left Tanalorn? How much time before Najan's bigger army reached the city? Or had it already done so? And suddenly he thought of something, looked for Sarana, but she had left the tent. Where lies Zerlarines? Lamzar was asking. Well, not in our realm, one of the Grey Lords replied. Come, we'll find you a guide. Sorana spoke the necessary word which took her immediately into the blue half-world with which she was so familiar. There were no other colours in it, but many, many shades of blue. Here she waited until Ikor noticed her presence. In the timelessness, she could not tell how long she had waited. The beggar horde came to an undisciplined and slow halt at the sign of its leader. A voice rang hollowly from the helm that was always closed. Tomorrow we march on Tanalorn. The time we have anticipated is almost upon us. Make camp now. Tomorrow shall Tanalorn be punished, and the stones of her little houses will be dust on the wind. The million beggars crackled to their glee and wetted their scrawny lips. Not one of them asked why they had marched so far, and this was because of Najan's power. In Tanalorn, Brute and Sass the One-Handed discussed the nature of death in quiet, over-controlled tones. Both were filled with sadness, less for themselves than for Tanalorn, soon to perish. Outside, a pitiful army tried to place a cordon around the town, but failed to fill the gaps between men. There were so few of them. Lights in the houses burned as if for the last time. The candles guttered moodily. Sorana, sweating as she always did after such an episode, returned to the plain occupied by the Grey Lords and discovered that Rakhir, Lamzar and their guide were preparing to leave. Ikor had told her what to do. It was for her to contact Najan. The rest the Lords of Chaos would accomplish. She blew her ex-lover a kiss as he rode from the camp into the night. He grinned at her defiantly, but when his face was turned from her he frowned, and then went in silence into the valley of the currents where they entered the world where lay the mountains of Zerlerines. Almost as soon as they arrived, danger presented itself. Their guide, a wanderer called Tamaris, pointed into the night sky which was spiked by the outlines of crags. This is a world where the air elementals are dominant, he said. Look. Flowing downwards in an ominous sweep, they saw a flight of owls, great eyes gleaming. Only as they came nearer did the men realise that these owls were huge, almost as large as a man. In the saddle, Rakia strung his bow. Tamiris said, How could they have learned of our presence so soon? Sorana, Rakia said, busy with the bow. She must have warned the Lords of Chaos and they have sent these dreadful birds. As the first one homed in, great claws grasping, great beak gaping, he shot it in its feathery throat and it shrieked and swept upwards. Many arrows fled from his humming bowstring to find a mark. 
while Tamiris drew his sword and slashed at them, ducking as they whistled downwards. Lamzar watched the battle, but took no part. Seemed thoughtful at a time when action was desired of him. He mused. If the spirits of air are dominant in this world, then they will resent a stronger force of other elementals. And he racked his brain to remember a spell. Rakia had but two arrows left in his quiver by the time they had driven the owls off. The birds had not been used, evidently, to a prey which fought back and had put up a poor fight considering their superiority. We can expect more danger, said Rakia somewhat shakily, for the Lords of Chaos will use other means to try and stop us. How far to Zerolini's? Not far, said Tamiris, but it is a hard road. They rode on, and Lamzar rode behind them, lost in his own thoughts. Now they urged their horses up a steep mountain path, and a chasm lay below them. Dropping, dropping, dropping. Rakir, who had no love for heights, kept as close to the mountainside as was possible. If he had had gods to whom he could pray, he would have prayed for their help then. The huge fish came flying, or swimming at them as they rounded a bend. They were semi-luminous, big as sharks, but with enlarged fins with which they planed through the air like rays. They were quite evidently fish. Tamiris drew his sword, but Rakir had only two arrows left, and it would have been useless against the airfish to have shot them, for there were many of the fish. But Lamzar laughed and spoke in a high-pitched, staccato speech. Crack! Hoa! Pishta! Sta! Sala! Fla! Huge balls of flame materialised amongst the black, sky-flaring balls of multicoloured fire which shaped themselves into strange, war-like forms and streamed towards the unnatural fish. The flame shapes seared into the big fish and they shrieked, struck at the fireballs, burned and fell flaming down into the deep gorge. Fire elementals, Rakia exclaimed. The spirits of the air fear such things, Lamzar said calmly. The flame beings accompanied the rest of them on the way to Zerlerines, and were with them when dawn came, having frightened away many other dangers which the Lords of Chaos had evidently sent against them. They saw the boats of Zelerines in the dawn, at anchor on a calm sky, fluffy clouds playing around their slender keels, their huge sails furled. The boatmen live aboard their vessels, Tamiris said, for it is only their ships which deny the laws of nature, not they. Tamiris cupped his hands around his mouth and called through the still mountain air, Boatmen of Zer Lerines, freemen of the air, guests come with a request for aid. A black and bearded face appeared over the side of one of the red gold vessels. The man shielded his eyes against the rising sun and stared down at them, and then he disappeared again. At length a ladder of slim thongs came snaking down to where they sat their horses on the tops of the mountains. Tamiris grasped it, tested it and began to climb. 
Rakhir reached out and steadied the ladder for him. It seemed too thin to support a man, but when he had it in his hands, he knew it was the strongest he had ever known. Lamzar grumbled as Rakhir signalled for him to climb, but he did so, and quite nimbly. Rakhir was the last, following his companions, climbing up through the sky, high above the crags, towards the ship that sailed on the air. The fleet comprised some twenty or thirty ships, and Rakhir felt that with these to aid him, there was a good chance to rescue Tanalorn, if Tanalorn survived. Narshan would, anyway, be aware of the nature of the aid he sought. Starved dogs barked the morning in, and the beggar horde, walking from where they had sprawled on the ground, saw Narjan already mounted, but talking to a newcomer. A girl in black robes that moved as if in a wind, but there was no wind. There was a jewel at her long throat. When he had finished conversing with the newcomer, Narjan ordered a horse he brought for her, and she rode slightly behind him when the beggar army moved on the last stage of their hateful journey to Tanalorn. When they saw how lovely Tanalorn and how it was so poorly guarded, the beggars laughed, but Najan and his new companion looked up into the sky. There may be time, said the hollow voice, and gave the order to attack. Howling, the beggars broke into a run towards Tanalorn. The attack had started. Brute rose in his saddle, and there were tears flowing down his face and glistening in his beard. His huge war axe was in one gauntleted hand, and the other held a spiked mace across the saddle before him. Zas, the one-handed, gripped the long and heavy broadsword with its pommel of a rampant golden lion pointed downwards. This blade had won him a crown in Andlamania, and he doubted whether it would successfully defend his peace in Tanalorn. Beside him stood Uroch of Nieva, pale-faced but angry as he watched the ragged horde's implacable approach. Then, yelling, the beggars met with the warriors of Tanalorn, and although greatly outnumbered, the warriors fought desperately, for they were defending more than life or love. They were defending that which had told them of a reason for living. Najan set his horse aside from the battle, Sorana next to him, for Najan could take no active part in the battle, could only watch and, if necessary, use magic to aid his human pawns or defend his person. The warriors of Tanalorn, incredibly, held back the roaring beggar horde, their weapons drenched with blood, rising and falling in at that sea of moving flesh, flashing in the light of the red dawn. Sweat now mingled with the salt tears in Brute's bristling beard, and with agility he leapt clear of his black horse as the screaming beast was cut from under him. The noble war cry of his forefathers sang on his breath, and although in his shame he had no business to use it, he let it roar from him as he slashed about him with biting war axe and rending mace. But he fought hopelessly, for Rakhir had not come, and Tanalorn was soon to die. His one fierce consolation was that he would die with the city, his blood mingling with the ashes. Zas also acquitted himself very well before he died of a smashed skull. 
his old body twitching as trampling feet stumbled over it as the beggars made for Udoch of Nieva. The gold-pommeled sword was still gripped in his single hand, and his soul was fleeing for limbo as Uroch too was slain fighting. Then the ships of Xerlerines suddenly materialised in the sky, and Brute, looking upward for one instant, knew that Rakir had come at last, though it might be too late. Narjan also saw the ships and was prepared for them. They skimmed through the sky, the fire elementals which Lamzar had summoned flying with them. The spirits of air and flame had been called to rescue, weakening Tanalorn. The boatmen prepared their wagons and made themselves ready for war. Their black faces had a concentrated look, and they grinned in their bushy beards. War harness clothed them, and they bristled with weapons, long barbed tridents, nets of steel mesh, curved swords, long harpoons. Rakir stood in the prow of the leading ship, his quiver packed with slim arrows loaned to him by the boatman. Below him he saw Tanalorn and was relieved that the city still stood. He could see the milling warriors below, but it was hard to tell from the air which were friends and which were foes. Lamzar called to his frisking fire elementals, instructing them, Tamiris grinned and held his sword ready as the ships rocked on the wind and dropped lower. Now Rakia observed Najan with Sorana beside him. The bitches warned him. He is ready for us, Rakia said, wetting his lips and drawing an arrow from his quiver. Down the ships of Zerlerines dropped, coursing downwards on the currents of air, their golden sails billowing. The warrior crews straining over the side and keen for battle. Then Najan summons the Kyrene. Huge as a storm cloud, black as its native, Hal, the Kyrene grew from the surrounding air and moved its shapeless bulk forward towards the ships of Zerlerines, sending out flowing tendrils of poison towards them. The boatman groaned as the coils curled around their naked bodies and crushed them. Lamzar called urgently to his fire elementals and they rose again from where they had been devouring beggars, came together in one great blossoming of flame which moved to do battle with the Kyrene. The two masses met and there was an explosion which blinded the Red Archer with multicoloured light and sent the ships rocking and shaking so that several capsized and sent their crews hurtling downwards to death. Blotches of flame flew everywhere, and patches of poison blackness from the body of the Kyrene were flung about, slaying those they touched before disappearing. There was a terrible stink in the air, the smell of burning, a smell of outraged elements which had never been meant to meet. The Kyrene died, lashing about a wailing, while the flame elementals, dying or returning to their own sphere, faded and vanished. The remaining bulk of the great Kyrene billowed slowly down to the earth, where it fell upon the scrabbling beggars and killed them, leaving nothing but a wet patch on the ground for yards around, a patch glistening with the bones of beggars. Now Rakia cried, Quickly, finish the fight before Najan summons more horrors! and the boats sailed downwards while the boatmen cast their steel nets, 
pulling large catches of beggars aboard their ships and finishing the wriggling starvelings with their tridents or spears. Lakia shot arrow after arrow and had the satisfaction of seeing each one take a beggar just where he had aimed it. The remaining warriors of Tanalorn, led by Brute, who was covered in sticky blood but grinned in his victory, charged towards the unnerved beggars. Najan stood his ground while the beggars, fleeing, streamed past him and the girl. Sorana seemed frightened, looking up, and her eyes met Rakia's. The Red Archer aimed an arrow at her, thought better of it, and shot instead at Najan. The arrow went into the black armour, but had no effect upon the Lord of Chaos. Then the boatmen of Zer Lernes flung down their largest net from the vessel in which Rakia sailed, and they had caught Lord Najan and his coils, and caught Sorana too. Shouting their exhilaration, they pulled the struggling bodies aboard, and Rakia ran forward to inspect their catch. Sorana had received a scratch across her face from the net's wire, but the body of Najan lay still and dreadful in the mesh. Rakia grabbed an axe from a boatman and knocked back the helm, his foot upon the chest. Yield, Najan of chaos, he cried in mindless merriment. He was near hysterical with victory, for this was the first time a mortal had ever bested a lord of chaos. But the armour was empty. If it had ever been occupied by flesh, Najan was now gone. Calm settled aboard the ships of Zerlerines and over the city of Tanalorn. The remnants of the warriors had gathered in the city square and were cheering their victory. Friago, the captain of the Zerlerines, came up to Rakir and shrugged. We did not get the catch we came for, but these will do. Thanks for the fishing, friend. Rakir smiled and gripped Friago's black shoulder. Thanks for the aid. You have done us all a great service. Friago shrugged again and turned back to his nets, his trident poised. Suddenly, Rakia shouted, No, Friago, let that one be. Let me have the contents of that net. Sorana, the contents to which he'd referred, looked anxious as if she had rather been transfixed on the prongs of Friago's trident. Friago said, Very well, Red Archer, there are plenty more people on the land pulled at the net to release her. She stood up shakily, looking at Rakia apprehensively. Rakia smiled quite softly and said, Come here, Sarana. She went to him and stood staring up at his bony hawk's face, her eyes wide. With a laugh, he picked her up and flung her over his shoulder. Tanalorn is safe, he shouted, and you shall learn to love its peace with me and he began to clamber down the trailing ladders that the boatman had dropped over the side. Lamzar waited for him below. I go now to my hermitage again. Well, I thank you for your aid, said Rakir. Without it, Tanalorn would no longer exist. Tanalorn will always exist while men exist, said the hermit. It was not a city you defended today. It was an ideal. That is Tanalorn. And Lamzar smiled. <laughs>